Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, emergency management, testing, well-being, COVID, anything that can help you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Longtime listeners and viewers, you'll know that um, sometimes I try to get speakers from conferences uh, that I've attended or was interested in trying to attend. Had some hiccups this year, but uh, uh, I was still lucky enough to get one of the speakers from DRJ Spring 2023 in Orlando this year. And I'd like to welcome to the show someone who had two topics there this year, Ray Holloman. Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And some people may recognize you because you made a quick appearance at a uh, previous episode that uh, James Green and I did back in, oh, I guess almost a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So welcome back for your second appearance. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad you uh, reached out and I'm glad, well, we connected and uh, to get you on the show. Now, I know you and I have talked a little bit before, but could you take a minute or two and introduce yourself, what you do and how you got into this crazy industry of ours? Yeah, so currently I'm a senior program manager for Enterprise Disaster Recovery for F5 Networks. I've been here approximately uh, 11 months at this point. Uh, But prior to that, I was at HCA Healthcare and that's how I got into this field. I was in my master's degree program in information security, took a really big interest into business continuity, disaster recovery. I actually did my capstone project on business continuity plans for the service desk because I had seen how Basically, anytime we needed to evacuate the building, we did it differently every single time because there was no rhyme or reason. It hadn't been updated for telework, anything like that. So that's how I kind of got in there. And then from there, a position opened up. They're like, hey, would you like to come join the disaster recovery team? I was like, that sounds great. And so I've been doing this ever since. Ah, Well, I'm glad you're a part of the industry and welcome to the industry. It's crazy. Now that I've said that, run, run fast. No, just yeah, I've, been, I've been in it now, I guess, 10 years almost at this point. So I haven't got rid of me yet. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I'm glad you, you made it. And we're going to talk about, uh, first of all, one of the subjects you talked about at DRJ, and that was about cloud testing, a new frontier. What were you talking about there? Yeah, so with the cloud testing, really wanted to talk about How do we approach, you know, from a public cloud, hybrid cloud, or from a SaaS cloud provider, how do we approach testing? Because sometimes the things aren't in our control anymore, especially if you start Mm -hmm. using SaaS vendors and things like that. That's not necessarily in our control. And 
is it in your contract that you have disaster recovery, that you have backups? There's so much of the time where I hear people's like, it's in the cloud, we're protected. And I was like, no, just because you move to the cloud does not mean that you're protected. It just means that you've moved the responsibility of that infrastructure from being internal to external, but you still have to take care of your disaster recovery, your backups and all those things. And a lot of people don't look into their contracts and see that they only take care of your production. You may not have anything there for disaster recovery because it may be your own responsibility to take your own backups and to do your own disaster recovery. And so just really getting people into that mindset of really looking at, there are so many different ways to do cloud. And a lot of people are moving that way because they want to get out of the data center management space and they want to get more into moving into the applications and things. But all of those things that you were doing when that stuff was on-prem, you still have to do all of those same things when it moves into the cloud. Sometimes it can be a lot easier, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be any cheaper than what you were paying for when you were on-prem. How is it easier? And how is it more difficult? I would say it's easier because you don't necessarily have to have multiple locations yourself because your vendor may have multiple locations. So instead of you trying to stand up a disaster recovery data center, you know, 500 miles away, you can use that vendor and just use that allocated space. So you aren't having to pay for that, but it's also a lot more difficult because you lose some control over the security, who access that building, things like that. That's where it can become a little bit more difficult depending upon what type of data you have inside of your data center. So how do you go about doing a test then? Let's say between you and I, we're company A and company B. And I have to perform a test, but my stuff is in the cloud with your company. Do I tell you you have to be part of a test and tell you what you need to do? Or do you say, no, this is all we're doing. It's all you guys. Like, how, do, how does that work? It varies. I've seen where some contract was like, we're going to require you to do a test this, do a test with us every September. I've also seen it where they're like, we're really hands off. You can come in here and do what you want. You can spin up to another instance. A lot of times that's what I see is that they may be in a public cloud instance and they're like, you have the flexibility to spin up into this other instance and we're only going to charge you when you spin that up. So it really varies based upon what you put into that contract. Um, but most of the time what I see from a from an organization that maybe is moving their stuff to the cloud, they'll probably pick a window where they used to do it on-prem. They'll just run all their exercises maybe for a week in that other location, and they just allocate the cost for that because that is one thing where you know, you're only are paying for it now when you use it. So now you have to think about, okay, I'm going to use DR. So my cost for cloud is going to go up this month versus what it usually is where we're just running production month after month. Does that kind of assume that, let's say I did that and I went and did all these tests at um, my vendor's location. Does that assume that everyone at the vendor is available at my beck and call when I need them? Because oh, they, they've got to have a role to play at some point. And just like my own organization, not everyone's going to be available at the snap of a finger. Yeah. And so that's something that you have to think about with moving to the cloud is that you are now one of many customers that they have. 
And so a lot of that is back to your contract. What does it say? And then what have you done as an organization to prepare so you don't have to have as much reliance? So a lot of that is going to be, have you put your applications into containers where you can redeploy them yourselves? Are you still looking at legacy infrastructure? I think we see a lot of that where you're looking at people that are using like mainframes and things like that, where you may have to have somebody hands-on to put the physical tape in. Do you have somebody that's close enough on ground? I've seen that where people have contracted to have somebody close enough that's like a dedicated person that can go and put their hands on the equipment if they need to inside of a vendor's uh data center just just for that fact of they want somebody close to be able to say okay we can't wait for them to get to us so we're going to have somebody there that we're going to be able to pull and have them go put hands on that infrastructure that we need at that time and that's that's got to be difficult because in some respects i kind of need my own person there right all the time and what's that person doing so, you know, am I just paying for that person to sit there in case they're needed? Um, or should I also be using that offsite as something else? Yeah, a lot of more complexity. Yeah, a lot of what I've been saying is that a lot of people have been using that person as and been using these data centers not only as your disaster recovery, but they may be using it as user acceptance environments, uh, being able to test something before it rolls out to production, just something so it keeps it more active and keeps it more in use and also allows a lot of times for it to stay better in sync with production if you're actually moving workloads over there more than just once or twice a year if you're actually practicing okay we're going to run uat over here for six months um, and be able to but knowing that if a disaster happens we can blow that environment away and bring it back up um, with our production environment inside of the recovery time objectives. And so it's really about how are we making these environments more flexible? Because we all know that disaster recovery is a huge cost. And so I'm always thinking about what are creative ways that do not take away from my disaster recovery capabilities, but add benefit back to the company. And so a lot of that I'm seeing that, you know, doing that acceptance of testing and not having to do it in full production, but in a lower environment sometimes really helps because hopefully you have the same gear in DR. And so you should be able to really get a feel for it and get people to play and train before they go to the real thing. And so that's one of the things that I've been trying to advertise to people is that, yes, it's disaster recovery, but what other things can you use it for? Can you use it for a training environment? What can you use that for to maybe give you some more insights into how people are using it? What's the performance going to look like? What are your peaks and valleys? Because that way you're not doing necessarily your production, but you can see that long-term effect in that environment. And that makes that person that you have there for disasters, not just be your disaster person, but be basically the manager of that data center. And so you have somebody there that's familiar with that environment. So you know they will be there and they're going to be familiar with the equipment versus just calling them up, you know, when something happens, they're there mm. kind of 40 hours a week maintaining that environment, seeing when things go bad because nobody wants to get into disaster and realize that half a cluster is down. But if you have somebody in there all the time, they'll know that cluster is down, it can be repaired. And so hopefully you don't have any interruptions if you do have to declare. 
And I guess by utilizing that site, um, by, you know, you gave examples of UAT and, you know, other sites development or um, QA and all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. uh, You're helping people with the muscle memory as well on if this was a real situation, yeah, I just do this. But they're doing that every two, three months anyway, as part of, uh, I guess, business as usual tasks, Mm -hmm. moving things around, which makes it a lot easier for when something actually happens. They already know, oh, yeah, I can do this and this instead of trying to find a notepad Mm -hmm. or some big thick binder (laughs) that tells them what they should and shouldn't do. They're already going to know. Exactly. It's like, okay, like we just did this a couple of months ago. I know what it does, what I need to do. And it also helps for just training people as people rotate in and out of positions, in and out of companies. If you're doing this on a regular basis, then your people are going to stay up to date versus doing it maybe once, maybe twice a year. And then you have somebody that's new to the company and they're the person that's on call, but they've actually never done it. That can be like a scary thing for somebody that comes in brand new. And it's never experienced this, but, oh, we're doing this. This happens every two months or happens once a quarter. That gets people familiar with it because all of that prep and training, you know that it's coming up. So you're going to make sure that the new person knows, hey, this is where you go for this script. This is where you, this is where this needs to move to on our rotation. And so it's something that doesn't get forgotten about because you're thinking about it continuously. And I guess you could kind of cycle that role in, depending on where that location is and how far it is away. But if it's not too far away, you might be able to cycle that role. You know, two months, it's Alex. The next two months, it's Ray. Then -hmm. it goes to Jane. And then it goes to Sally, you know, and then starts again. So that everyone on a team gets that same opportunity. Because then if something does occur, we're all trained on it. Mm -hmm. We're not, oh, Ray's not there. Oh, we're screwed. Because I think that's so much of like what we get into. We get people that are very specialized in what they do. And so they're just like, oh, they're going to take care of it. But what if they're on vacation or they're out of the country or they're not accessible for some other reason? You need to ensure that you have other people there. And so, you know, rotating that around, just like you said, makes it so that everyone is trained. And I think that's the thing where it's like you're making sure people are everyone's trained on how to do it. And you're bringing them into it versus just saying, oh, we're going to have one person dedicated. That person may win the lottery and leave the company. And so then you're just kind of like, oh, what do we do now if something happens at that same time? But you're like, oh, then it's no big deal because like, oh, I just did this last month. I know exactly what I need to go in and do, you know, may need to check a note or a reference, but the muscle memory is there. And so then it's just more of a verification than having to like scramble and try to find a document that tells walk somebody through how do I move uh, this from, you know, production to the DR to wherever it needs to go? Uh, agreed. Because you, you never know. And I've actually seen it where people have, uh, they participated in a test. They got to know how everything worked. And then within the next year, they moved on to a different position and someone else came in. And the some the management was thinking, yeah, we're ahead because we've got people who know what to do. Well, actually, you don't. You just took a step backwards. Because that person moved on and now you're starting fresh again. (laughs) Yeah, that rotation of like key people, that's one of the things uh, 
when I was doing a lot of test organizing is that I'm like, okay, you've already sent me this person twice this year. You've not sent me this person at all. Is there a reason for that? Because like, we never know who's going to be on call, who's going to get the call. So if there's a reason or a skill set deficit, I need to know that because I have them as being in this department, having this skill set. So if they don't have that skill set, I need to know that because I go look at your rosters and see who you have. And I'm just wanting to verify because I want to make sure that like we don't get into a place where you may have somebody that's senior, but you also need to tie that to a junior person. So that way they can learn. And then maybe the next time that junior person becomes a senior person, always in that rotation, because otherwise you get two, maybe three people who know how to do it, but then there's no capacity if it's a like in an exercise, like obviously we don't get everybody, but when it's all hands on deck and not everybody knows what they're doing, that can cause a lot of problems and cause delays in the recovery effort. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you never know who's available. Like you said, mm-hmm. it could be anybody, you know, it could be none of them too. And the people exactly. that are available are simply untrained and have exactly. no idea, which is just the same as having nobody. Exactly. They're like, but they know IT. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> I know some they... IT, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> I'm like, do they have credentials into the system that I need them to log into? No, then they're no help to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you, you've talked about contracts um, between, um, let's say, my company and your company. But what if I have a partner that's asking me, how do I do my testing? How do you communicate that? Because my testing now is done differently with you than the way I would have done it before. I'm now in the cloud. So how do you communicate that to give a sense of confidence to my other partners that are out there now? Because that's a different aspect as well that they need to understand. Yeah, that's definitely something that's becoming more and more prevalent. And so a lot of what... I have been just even reviewing myself is just a lot of the SOC 2 reports from a lot of these vendors, seeing what they're going out there getting audited. I'm like, I get audited as an organization. I'm going to also, you know, ask, how are you being audited? What are you putting in place for disaster recovery? What's your testing schedule? What are you requiring of your vendors to do? So really starting to ask those questions and starting to see like, I don't need to see your full on disaster recovery plan, but I want to know that you are going through and auditing your customers or your uh, your vendors, making sure that that's in there. Are you holding them? And then the stuff that we're requesting from you, you know, are we able to hold you to the RTOs and RPOs that we have stated? Just mm-hmm. those type of things, making sure they get into that language of saying that like, it, every year, I want to see some updated report saying that you've done, what's the testing you've done? You know, were you able to meet your objectives? Don't need to get into the details, but at least I know that you are complying with what you say you do as a program, which is we're doing the testing. This is what we're going through and verifying these things. This is what we're getting from our partner vendors to say that if they're doing this testing. Here's how we're checking and making sure that our backups and everything that we need are all there. So it's really just going through and saying, yes, I want to trust that, you know, you're going to withhold our uh, withhold the bounds of our contract, but I'm also want to verify. So who are you having externally come in and vet you as well? Yeah, because I want to make sure that as your organization with your vendor, you're meeting your recovery times or or objectives, but as a partner to you, 
I want to make sure you're meeting the objectives and the service level agreement that we have established. Exactly. If you if you have a big situation, I know you're dealing with this other company and you have to meet their objectives. And if it if the objective is, for argument's sake, 24 hours with them, but ours is 12. Did you meet my objective? No, you didn't. Uh-huh. Because I'm already waiting 12 additional hours for you to come back online. So you're not meeting my SLA. Yeah, and that's where having good documentation and knowing what are your customers' SLAs and what have you put into a contract really helps because we may think, oh, everybody's at 24 hours, but somebody may have a 12-hour. So now we've got to make sure that everything that we thought we had 24 hours to do, or for this customer, they may have 12. So what are we doing to ensure those 12-hour customers are getting back up before our 24 hours are getting back up because obviously there's probably some penalty if we mm-hmm. miss it. And so how are we tracking that in our processes, um, in our BIAs, in our tools, and when we're assessing, how are we tracking to make sure that we aren't promising more than what we're actually capable of doing? Because yeah. a lot because sometimes that is what gets you into trouble. Yeah. Over promise and under deliver. Exactly. <laughs> We're coming to the end of this segment, Ray. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to say about cloud testing and the new frontier we're all faced with now? Yeah, I would say that you really, you know, look at your contracts and making sure that you have disaster recovery in there. Don't just assume that because you've gone to the cloud that you're protected. And so verifying that you have your backups, you have everything that you need from a disaster recovery perspective, because you don't want to get caught in a situation where you thought you had it and you actually don't, because that's going to take you a lot longer to recover from. So just ensuring that it's there, just because you move to the cloud, you need to just verify that you still have that disaster recovery protection. Well, thank you very much, Ray. We've come to the end of this segment. I really enjoyed that. Um, I think it's a new challenge for a lot of people. Um, because there was a time when we were just dealing with you know one external client, you know, let's say we were dealing with a, a DR vendor, mm-hmm. and the considerations coming from external sources weren't really there, you know, at least not to the the point they are now. There's so much more in your face about all this stuff. So um, I, I think it's really interesting, and I hope everyone does open the drawers or the uh, the file folders, whatever they've got, <laughs> and have a look at their contracts and find out, are you standing where you think you stand? Exactly. I'm like, that's the biggest thing. Like, just, just go through and check because there's always contract renewals where you can make changes. So know, what, know, know where you're at because that's the only way you'll know what you need to change and what position you're in. Yeah. And on that note, we've come to the end of the segment. Ray, thanks very much. And we'll be right back with segment two. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Ray Holloman uh, about one of his sessions at the DRJ Spring 2023 conference in Orlando this year. Uh, Ray, lots of great information in the first segment about cloud testing. Now I'd like to touch base on the second presentation you gave, and that was entitled Translating the Words, Rules, and Regulations of Resilience. Now, if that doesn't grab people's attention, I don't know what does. (laughs) What were you getting at in this presentation? So with this presentation, we... uh... I co-presented this with someone else. And so I've been on DRJ's glossary committee for the last two years. And so really what we were doing was reminding people that that the glossary exists out here. Um, A lot of people didn't know where it was or didn't know like that DRJ even had this as a resource. So a lot of this was reminding people because especially coming up, coming out of COVID and a lot of people have moved into business continuity, disaster recovery, emergency management, a lot of, we're seeing a lot of new faces that weren't here prior to that because companies Mm -hmm. started seeing that, hey, this is really a need that we have with the pandemic and people have got into it during the pandemic 
and have enjoyed it. And so now they're trying to get more education behind it. And so we did this session to kind of talk about one half of it was like all the rules and regulations that kind of drive our industry. And then the other half was really to talk about the glossary that we have and how it can be used as a resource where people have been, you know, we may say recovery time objective means one thing, but another organization may something else or internally in your own organizations, you may have defined it as something. But for those people that have not defined it or want to go to somewhere that's like an industry standard, we're trying to pull all this information together so people know that, hey, we are looking across the industry to say, okay, we're looking at um, NIST and we're looking at ISO and we're seeing how they're defining these terms. And we're trying to bring all of that together in one area so that people know these are terms like if you don't have a good definition for it in your organization, start here because this is what mm. we're pulling kind of the cream of the crop from the rest of the industry. So you can use these as your terms. And it also allows your senior leadership to know that, okay, you're not just making this definition up. You've gone <laughs> somewhere and pull this. And it's actually, we cite wherever we pull the definitions from. So you can go and see, here's all of our information that we're looking at and really just trying to, and the same thing with rules and regulations. It's a source for people to really be able to use and know what are all the different rules and regs that you can use to justify why you need a business continuity program, a disaster recovery program, how some of these may impact your industry as your industry evolves and changes. I, I've got a copy of the uh, glossary every couple of years or so. I print out a new version. It's just over here out of reach yeah. um, because sometimes uh, dealing with different clients words and phrases and definitions do mean something different. And as you say, I agree, you know, here's the industry definition of RTO using your example. What does that mean to you? Does it mean the same? No, it means this. Great. Then that's the one we'll follow. Uh -huh. So at least it keeps us all on the same page. But if they didn't have a definition, then it's like, Ooh, that's the industry. Good. Then that's what we'll follow because it's uh -huh. also a booster. Uh -huh. You know, oh, we're going to follow the industry definition. Hey, that's good. Exactly. And it's getting people to realize that, you know, you may have your own terms, but it's a great place to start if you don't have anything or if people are getting terms confused, because a lot of times that's what I'll see. They're like, mm. oh, I thought RTO meant this, but it actually but they'll actually be speaking to RPO. And so I'm like, here, let me explain to you how these are different or what you're thinking of is actually something else. And so let me show you from an industry standpoint, because a lot of times I'm speaking to people who are not in the industry, like they work tangentially to us, but they may be an infrastructure person. So they have in their mind what a recovery a time objective may be, but that may be different than how I define it. And so it's like, it allows kind of like you said, for everybody to be on the same page as we're discussing. And so we know that we're having the same conversation and they're not leaving the conversation thinking one thing and I'm leaving it thinking something else. And then we meet back together in a week, we, we still aren't on the same page. So it kind of helps for everybody to get onto the same page very early and very quickly by just saying like, here are the definitions that we're going to use. Here are the terms that you use. Okay, great. I will use that as my guiding force because that's what you're used to. And, but I know what these terms mean to you and that mm -hmm. just helps me. Yeah. And I think that's something that uh, a lot of us in the industry sometimes forget 
you know, we're trying to push our definitions and industry definitions on people when they've already been established somewhere. But it's good for us to know the difference because sometimes we'll go to a third place and know that, hey, they're having challenges and they don't like this industry definition, but I know another one that might help them. Exactly. Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing is that, you know, it allows for you to know, hey, what's the industry? But how are other people using that same term? Because you never know where it may not fit perfectly for that customer, the industry may, but somebody else's definition may be better aligned to kind of how they run their business. Yeah, agreed. Now, regulations, there are you know, quite a few, and it seems as time goes by, there's more and more that are are coming out uh, around the globe uh, with regards to business continuity or disaster planning or resilience, which is uh, one of those buzzwords, really, out there right now for everything. How do you go about establishing what uh, regulation works for you as well? Because they sometimes, I won't say contradict each other, but they do offer different viewpoints. So how do you know what's going to work for you? Because part of one might work and part of another might work for you. Yeah, so I think a lot of that is really looking at how are it, how is your organization set up and structured? Are you somebody that likes to follow NIST standards? Are you somebody that likes to follow the IS? ISO standards. Like if that's how your organization is structured, taking those at face value and bringing that in because that's what you know your leadership is going to want you to follow, that may be the best way to go about it. Um, I've also seen other organizations that do, okay, we're going to kind of look at this has some really great stuff, but we kind of like some of this other stuff that's happening over here. Or sometimes you're just mandated because of, you know, you're a financial institution or you're a healthcare institution and you have other mandates. And so that gives you your requirements. But I think it really depends upon like, what are you getting out of that? Uh, what are you getting out of that rule? What are you getting out of that regulation? Like, is it something that you have to follow for your end to be compliant in your industry? Or is it just more of a uh, guiding point for you because you want to elevate your program? And I think that's really what kind of helps make the difference is because a lot of times when you're starting out, you may just need a framework to start with. So NIST may be just a place to start because you're just getting started on this journey. And then as you evolve and you see that you're like, well, not all of this stuff applies to us, but everything that does apply to us, we are going to use because it makes sense and it gives us a structure and it gives us a way to validate that we are meeting all of these different checkpoints. It's interesting the way you just described that, because I'm sure you've probably run into this. I know I have quite a few times is audit and compliance will just latch on to a single regulation or a standard or guideline or framework, whatever's out there. And then we'll point out a whole bunch of things that you're not doing right, but it's because you're not actually following that standard in full. How do you go about trying to align that So like, hey, you need to look at these other things as well. We're not just using that framework. Yeah, I think that's where, you know, it has to become a partnership with the audit, with the people doing it and saying that, like, 
you are grading us to a standard that we are not even following. Let us show you, like, here's what we have been going by. Audit us to this and tell us where we're failing. Not just something that you randomly pulled out and said, okay, we're going to follow this standard, but we're not going to tell you that you need to follow this standard. Because really that needs to be a conversation and saying, hey, we've been we've been working on trying to do the NIST controls. So can you audit us against these controls? Because that's what we've been working towards for the last year versus trying to do the ISO standards, because that may not be what we've been working on, but that's what you've been grading us to. So yes, we're going to fail because that's not what we've been working towards. And so that really leads to having a conversation within internally in the organization and saying that, like, yes, we want to be audited. Like, we're not trying to get away from be from being audited. We just want to be audited on the thing that we're actually trying to implement versus something else that we haven't even looked at. Yeah, I, I, I've run into that a few times myself. It's like, what are you talking about? We're not doing that. You know, it's like, oh, well, then you've got a deficiency. Like, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> it doesn't even apply to us. <laughs> you know, it, but it becomes that sometimes tick box mentality when we start talking about rules, regulations, and, and standards. You know, it's like, okay, here's all the things. And then off they go on some someone's list. And there you go. Yeah. And I think having that kind of mentality of just trying to check the tick boxes, it doesn't that doesn't always work because it's like organizations are complex and no two organizations are the same. No two departments are even the same. And so you've got to make sure that like, you know, having the framework and the guidelines help, but like everybody's got to be following the same page, like audit, we're going to be doing this, come grade us in six months and tell us how we're doing, because that'll show what progress did we make over from where we started, which was nowhere, to six months to a year. And so being able to see that also allows you to report up to senior leadership, hey, in a year's time, we were able to go from, you know, basically having all of these, you know, having no program to having this basically the beginning structure of a program. Now, when we come back to you in a year from now, we should be able to even show you more compliance to all of these things. But that all means that everybody in the organization has to be on board with following this. And so audit, you can't be grading us to something that we don't know about. You can't um, I always say it's like, you can't move the goalpost on me. I'm like, I didn't even yeah. know these goalposts were here. <laughs> uh, and so that's really that thing of like ensuring that people understand what are you grading them on and that also goes back to you know just that transparency of making sure everybody is speaking the same language speaking the same rules and regs like everybody knows as an organization what we are marching forward with and on that there's another topic i want to ask you about and we talked about this during our break here resilience resilience has kind of become a buzzword and almost a catch catch-all for everything. So how do you go about dealing with that? Because we have personal or individual resilience. We have operational resilience. We have community resilience. We see the word appear everywhere. You know, I I've, I even saw one article a little while ago of uh, a guitar player on stage, you know, had to, was fixing something and they said, oh, uh, you know, I don't know, a bum note or something like that in, in mm -hmm. the song said, oh, that guitar player is resilient. <laughs> what? 
Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. We're using this word now for everything under the sun. So how do you go about trying to define that part when it comes to rules, regulations, and you know definitions and all the different ways it is being used? I feel like resilience has we as a committee, we've talked about it a ton because we had resilience and then you started having cyber resilience and operation resilience and enterprise resilience. And then you have like resiliency in the company, financial resilience. I'm like, we're just using, we're just putting any, any word in front of resilient and saying that's what it is. Uh, and so a lot of this is coming down to really figuring out like, okay, what do we mean by resilience? Okay. We really are meaning the ability to bounce back, you know, after a conflict or a disruption. Okay, let's start there. So, like when we look at a cyber resilience, okay, how can we how can we bounce back from a cyber event? The department I'm in is called enterprise resilience, and so it's like for us, how we've defined that is business continuity, disaster recovery, and cybersecurity. All of uh, all three of our departments kind of fall under this one umbrella, and we kind of the things that make sense for us to talk about together, we do. But there's obviously things that we do that do not make sense for us to talk about um, from a resilient standpoint altogether. So a lot of it is, I think, people people and organizations are having to find what does resilience mean to them. We've actually had a hard time really coming up with a definition of resilience because it's used in so many different ways. The way I kind of use it is like, what's your ability and capacity to bounce back after a disruption? really simple you can use you can use it in any kind of term didn't get too into like very specific business continuity disaster recovery because i mean that's what resilience is um and so i think that's how a lot of organizations are using it i'm seeing a lot of organizations right now you know we're seeing them use it from a you know a financial resilience standpoint of with all the layoffs and things that they're doing to make sure that they're going to stay in business and so it's it's an interesting term and so i first started you know using uh resiliency in a different way where it was kind of looking at um does disaster recovery plus high availability equal like resiliency that's how i started using it um in the past because people were saying oh we need our systems to be resilient and i'm like what do you mean by that well we want them Mm -hmm. to be always available i was like that's great you can want your system to be always available but what happens if you have a corruption event and you had two sides and now they're both corrupted? You, you've lost your resiliency there. You've lost your high availability. So you still have to have your disaster recovery, your backups, things like that there. And so it's getting people to think that resiliency is not just your ability to stay up um, and you know not see a disruption, but how do you recover from that disruption? And I think that kind of definition and terminology really makes it apply to really anything that you could think of, of like personally, like, okay, you have a hard time. How are you going to bounce back from it? Um, cyber, operationally, thinking about it in those kind of ways really kind of helps you think through that resilience mindset. I, I've had other guests on the show and they've they've said that uh, with re- resilience, there's a, a set of characteristics associated with it. And you kind of touched on that uh, with what you just said here, that if there are certain things in place, well, then you are resilient. You know, lessons learned. If you have something mm-hmm. that occurs, you know, if you have all these sessions, lesson learned sessions, well, that's great. But if nothing changes, 
well, then you aren't contributing to your resilience. You're just going through the motions, really. Mm-hmm. So is is that another way of looking at it, too, is that there's there's a set of characteristics that we have in our organization, whether they be technical or uh, administrative or uh, cultural, that if we're addressing them and moving them forward, then when we do experience something, we are contributing to our resiliency. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it's that it's the whole mindset that you have about it. How are you making sure that all the people on the team know how to do every part of the job? They might not do it every day, mm-hmm. but when it's all hands on deck, they may have to step into a role they're typically not in. When you do your lessons learned, are you just documenting it for posterity or are you actually making improvements to your system, to your how the operations are done to see that you are making those changes. So I really think it is a set of characteristics where you're really starting to think about like, it's like one part is like, how do you bounce back? But then how what did we learn from that? And how can we make sure that when this happens again, we don't do it the exact same way? How can we make sure that we have a shorter time to recovery? What have we implemented from our lessons learned to say, oh, well, Last time, it took us two hours to get everybody on the phone. Well, we implemented an emergency communication tool, and now we can get everybody direct dial and onto the phone in five. That's a great way where you've been enhancing your resiliency as you've been moving forward and using your lessons learned as a way to enhance your resiliency. As um, uh, previous guests I've had on the show, uh, the authors of uh, Bounce Forward, Cynthia Barlow and uh, Jennifer Eggers, that it's not just bouncing back. You got to be able to bounce forward. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be able to move forward. Otherwise, you are in the same spot as you were before, uh, which doesn't better position you position you for anything. Yeah, learn from your past to enhance your future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, well said. We're coming to the end of this segment, Ray. Do you have any final thoughts on? Uh, uh, the session translating the, the words, rules, and regulations of resilience? Yeah, I just want people to know that, you know, as a committee at, at DRJ, we are trying to hear from people. Like, if there are terms that are missing that you're using, we need to know because we don't know what everybody's using in the industry. Um, some of the good conversations that we had in it was also partnering with other resilience organizations like, like DRJ, like BCI, and starting to figure out, like, do we need to come together as a collective and start looking at not only what we use, you know, here, uh, you know, in North America, but what's used worldwide? How do we start making sure that more of these terms are more global in usage and seeing how the definitions may shift and change, especially as a lot of our companies become more global? Um, And so that was one of the really good insights that I got was that some guides are very like EU specific or um, uh, North America specific. How do we make that more global in context? So that way, when we come to these conferences, we all know that, you know, we can be speaking the same language, the same terminology, because I think that's really important to continue to just enhance our profession and know that all of these terms out here exist. I recommended that when I was on a closing panel uh, back in 2016, 17, somewhere around there. Um, with Cheyenne Marling. I don't know if you know Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I suggested, I said, it would be nice if some of these different organizations could get together and really come to one definition for words to put us all on the same page. And I made that recommendation to some of the uh, BCI, DRI people that were there. <laughs> you should have seen some of the looks I got. <laughs> but that's some of the challenge. People want their own silo. You know, and, and that that's part of the problem, I think, uh, mm-hmm. that people don't want to give that up. You know, instead of coming together, as you suggested, they want to stay in their silo. Yeah, and uh, we had some people from BCI come up come up to me after my talk and said they're definitely interested because they have the same problem of the information being buried on their site and just trying to get visibility to it. So that's one of the things that I hope is um, I took back to the committee and was like, hey, we really need to start working on this and maybe promoting the glossary in a different way so that way people know that it exists and it's out here. Yeah, and it would be nice if we did speak the same language. Exactly. I'm like, we... That would be so easy if we all just said the same language and we knew what the words meant. It'd yeah. make my life half a little bit easier. I'd say completely, but it'll make it a little bit. Well, you know, if I if I went to Spain, I have to learn and know at least some Spanish to be able mm-hmm. to understand what's going on. Exactly. But for some reason in our industry, <laughs> you know, we're we're kind of not doing that on in right. some respects. So Ray, thank you so much for joining us. We've come to the end of the second segment. I really appreciate you sharing your time here and and talking about your presentations at DRJ. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, you know, I know this was your second and or third uh, second, sorry, time of being here. So maybe there'll be a third. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> thanks once again, Ray, and everybody watching and listening. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.